So we're going to turn to our sermon text now. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 13 through 17. We've been thinking together about discipline since last Sunday, and uh, the next couple of passages as well will kind of be on this theme of discipline. Discipline is how God keeps his children close to him and walking according to his ways. Fatherly love always includes discipline. Where you have a loving father, you will also have discipline for those children. It's just part of the process of being fathered by a good father. Whether it's spankings or timeouts or uh, being grounded, whatever form it might take, a good dad disciplines his children. For me, uh, my dad taught drafting at Independence High School, which is a kind of technical drawing. And as part of that, part of his... Uh, Supplies for that was these rulers that had three different sides to them because he needed all those different measurements. And that's what he would use for our discipline when we were younger. I don't think I experienced the three-pronged ruler as much as my older brother did, but uh, it was always very intimidating. That's what he used. But he didn't use that because he hated us and he liked to inflict pain. He used it because he loved us and he wanted to keep us close to him and walk according to the right ways. That's the way God is. If God is your father, if you are his child through Jesus Christ, you can count on it. He will discipline you, just like he disciplined our ancient older brother, Israel. He will discipline you. Uh, so this week, uh, well, last week we saw that God disciplined Israel when they became too proud to listen to him. And this week we're going to see that he had really good reason to do that, really good reason to discipline them. They became so rebellious that they refused to turn to him, even when he did discipline them. Let's read about that in verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Well, why would you turn to someone who just struck you? Well, normally you wouldn't want to move towards someone who is striking you, but in terms of fatherly discipline, that's the whole goal and the whole point of the striking. It is to turn the child back to the father, to bring the wayward child to turn his direction back to the father and his ways. You don't spank your child because you hate them and want to get rid of them. You do it because you love them and you want to restore the relationship and bring them close. Timeouts for young children should always end in a hug in a, a reconciliation, a restored relationship. There's a big difference between wrath and discipline biblically, even though sometimes we get the two confused. The Bible teaches that there is such a thing as God's wrath, that it abides on those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, that it is poured out on those who reject Jesus and persist in doing evil uh, and it comes in the form of God giving them over to their sin and just letting them have it their way. He teaches that there is a day of wrath coming when his wrath will be fully and finally poured out, which means that those people will be fully and finally given over to their own rebellious ways and their own sins. So wrath is for the rebels. Discipline is for the children of God. Wrath is pictured as cutting off the dead branches of a tree and burning them in a fire. Whereas discipline is pictured as pruning a live branch so that it can bear more fruit. Wrath says, get out. I don't want to see your face anymore. Discipline says, 
you're grounded, go to your room, but only temporarily because I'm only doing it to teach you so that I can restore you back to closeness with me. Wrath says, get away from me. Discipline says, come back to me. So you can see the difference. We're not talking about wrath right now. We're talking about discipline. God wanted them to turn back to him, and that's why he was disciplining them, but they weren't. They were so rebellious, they refused to return to him. Instead, they turned even harder away from him. So what is a parent supposed to do when they're disciplining their child and the child's response to the discipline is to just rebel even harder, to turn away even harder? That's some of the most difficult circumstances to find yourself in if you're a parent. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Let's see what God did in this situation. Verse 14. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. This means that he abruptly pruned his people. The head and tail, branch and reed, that that is the idea of the tops and bottoms, the total, complete, thorough pruning that he did for his people. But it's still very figurative. So at this point, just in verse 14, we're still not crystal clear on what he's talking about. So let's read on into verse 15. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. So now he clarifies what he's talking about here. God abruptly pruned their leaders away, their societal leaders, the elders, the honored men, and the prophets. So he he cut off from the society those who were leading the society. Now, why would he do this? Why did he, he reach into his toolbox of possible disciplines and pick this out to cut off their leadership. Parents should always have a good rationale for the discipline they choose with their children. God is the perfect father, so we know he has good rationale for doing this. He did it in order to put to stop the leaders who were leading the people astray. He put a stop to the leaders because those leaders were leading the people astray. Let's read in verse 16. For, because, the reason he did this, for those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. So the guides were destroying the guided. They were leading them astray. They were causing them to go wrong. They were causing them to wander like lost people and stagger like drunk people. They, the, those who were being guided by these leaders were being swallowed up. They were being destroyed like something that is eaten up. They were being consumed. The people had gone so far astray, and they were so consumed that they were no longer pleasing to God at all. They displeased him. That's what we see as we get into verse 17. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. He does not rejoice over their young men. This means they're the strength of their society and the future of their society, God took no pleasure in them anymore. Normally, God would take pleasure in the young men of his people. The same way we as a church might look at our youth group, and when we see faithful, maturing Christians coming out of the youth group, that we rejoice in that because that's the vitality of the church and the future of the church. God looked at the young men, the young generation of his people, and he took no joy whatsoever, no rejoicing. But what's even more staggering and even shocking is that he had no compassion 
on their fatherless and widows. So if the young men were the strength of their society, the fatherless and widows were the weaker ones in society. Uh, this is a major thing throughout Scripture, fatherless and widows. They are the epitome of vulnerability in the Bible because in the patriarchal society they had, if there was no man, if there was no husband or father, that family had no power or protection or provision. And so they were extremely vulnerable. And so God declares himself in the Old Testament to be the father of the fatherless and the defender of widows. In multiple places, he swears his commitment to care for the fatherless and widows. In the New Testament, Jesus so identifies himself with the vulnerable people of society that he says, if you minister to them, it's as if you're ministering directly to me because I'm so closely identified with them. James chapter 1 verse 27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So this compassion for widows and orphans is extremely important to God. Why on earth would he look down on his people and say, I don't even feel compassion for your fatherless and widows? Well, so he felt no joy or compassion for his people because they had all become rotten. All of them. That's what he says as we continue reading in verse 17. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men. It has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. What he's describing here is comprehensive rottenness among God's people. It's comprehensive in two ways. It's every single one was rotten, whether from the guides to the guided, from the strong to the weak, they were all rotten. And it was comprehensive because they were rotten in every way. He says they were godless, they were evildoers, and they spoke folly. Godless means they were spiritually rotten. They had no concern for God. Evildoers means they were morally rotten. They had no obedience to God's ways. Speaking folly means they were logically rotten. They had no adherence or regard for God's wisdom and God's words. And so they were completely rotten, and therefore God's whole disposition toward them had changed. And he took no joy in them and had no compassion for them. And I've got a little object lesson here. I'll see if it works out any better for you guys than it did for them this morning. It's a little bit better. So in this brown paper bag, I have sealed up a banana. And you know how gross a banana can, be, can get if you forget it in a, a closed bag. It's not that bad. It's not as bad as I had hoped it would be. I just put it in uh, the bag this morning. But you know what uh, a completely rotten banana looks like. It's all black. It's got that clammy moisture to it, and it's just soft and disgusting. Would you be pleased if you came to grab a snack and that's all you had was a fully rotted through banana? Not just a little bit rotten, not just one dark spot that you could carve off with a butter knife and eat the rest of it fully rotten. No, you would not be pleased. You would not rejoice in that. You would want to get rid of that as soon as possible. This is basically what God was looking at with his people they had completely deteriorated, decayed, decomposed, spiritually, morally, and even logically. They were a mess. And so God was angry. And our passage ends at the end of verse 17. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. That may sound familiar to you because that's how our passage ended 
last Sunday. That's how the next two passages end with that same phrase. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. God was very angry with his children and he was determined to discipline them. And what are we supposed to take from this ancient passage written some 700 years before Jesus's birth? Luke chapter 24, 27, Jesus sits down with some of his followers and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus sat down with his followers and worked through the Old Testament, explaining how the scriptures all pertain to him. This is how we understand the Old Testament. It's almost like putting together a puzzle. Some of you may have put together some puzzles during this whole pandemic quarantine. You had some time at home. We definitely have. You pour out all the pieces of the puzzle and you start sifting them all out. And then if you're like me, you set the box up on its side that has the picture that you're trying to achieve with that puzzle. And you look at that picture on the box and that helps you make sense of all the random pieces on the table. Meredith doesn't use the picture on the box because she's a super genius, but I have to have the picture on the box. When we look at the box of the New Testament, we see a picture of Jesus. And that's what the Old Testament is about. That's how you understand the Old Testament. When you understand that it's about Jesus, you can put the pieces together. If you expect, if you have the wrong box and you think that the Old Testament puzzle is about you and you look through those pages to find yourself in there, you're always going to be confused and the pieces are never going to fit. The Old Testament is all pointing ahead toward Jesus. That's the key that unlocks every Old Testament passage, including this one. So I believe what we are meant to see as we read this passage is how Israel's disobedience points us to Jesus's obedience. Israel's disobedience here points us to Jesus's obedience. Israel refused to turn to God. Jesus turned to God all the time. Think about how often Jesus turned to God the Father in prayer. I've got a list here, and I'm going to go through it with you. Jesus turned to the Father in prayer before he was baptized. He turned to the Father in prayer before he went to preach. In Luke 5.16, we see that he would often withdraw to desolate places to pray. Before he called the disciples, the twelve, he spent all night turning to the Father in prayer. He turned to the Father in prayer when he spoke to the Jewish leaders who opposed him. Before feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000, before he walked on water, before Peter called Jesus the Christ, he turned to the Father in prayer during the transfiguration. Uh, at the return of the 70 that he sent out to minister, he turned to the Father in prayer. In Luke 11.1, 1, we see that before he taught the Lord's Prayer to his followers, guess what he was doing? He was praying. Before raising Lazarus from the dead, he turned to the Father in prayer. When he interacted with children, he turned to the Father in prayer for those children. At the institution of the Lord's Supper, he turned to the Father in prayer. John 17 verses 1 through 26 records the high priestly prayer is what it's called. Uh, we That's what was preached at our last denominational triennial meetings a couple of years back. That is one big glorious example of Jesus turning to the Father in prayer. In Gethsemane, before his trial that would lead to his crucifixion, he turned to the Father in prayer. Right before being nailed to the cross, he turned to the Father in prayer. While he was dying on the cross, 
he turned to the Father in prayer. And with his dying breath, he turned to the Father in prayer. So the people of Israel did not turn to him who struck them, but Jesus did turn to him who struck him. He succeeded where Israel failed. So while God cut off Israel's leader, leaders, he established Jesus as the leader over his people. Let me go back to Ephesians 1, 20-23, which we read at the beginning of our time together. It says, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, God put Jesus as head over everything, in contrast to the way he cut off the heads of Israel, who were so badly misguiding them. This might be the most pressing reminder for us from this Isaiah passage. We have a leader. God's people have a leader. We do not have to navigate all the confusion of our current day on our own. From the confusion related to the pandemic, the confusion related to the civil unrest, the confusion related to our lives being turned upside down, the confusion that comes from conflicting opinions and conflicting news reports, all that. We don't have to navigate all that as if we are on our own. We have a leader in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, I am not the leader of this church. Jesus is. Our ultimate leader is not our president. Our ultimate leader is not the CDC. Our ultimate leaders do not come from the Black Lives Matter movement. Our ultimate leaders do not come from those who are so opinionated and vocal on social media, one direction or another. Our opinions, our, our leadership does not come directly from the experts and academics. Ultimately, our leader is Jesus Christ, and he is a good leader. If we can keep our wits about us in the midst of all this confusion and stick with Jesus and let him be our leader, we will stand strong with stability and will stand apart from those who are running around like chickens with their heads cut off in every direction because whereas Israel's leaders led them astray, Jesus leads us well. Jesus leads us perfectly. Back then in the Isaiah 9 passage, the guides were destroying the guided, but Jesus builds up and establishes those who follow him. They cause their people to go wrong and to wander and stagger. Jesus leads us straight. Jesus leads us on the right path with clear direction, stability. Back then, those people were swallowed up because their leaders were so bad, but we are built up and nourished and made whole by following Jesus. Under Israel's leadership, the people began to displease God, but under Jesus, we please him. So back then, God did not rejoice over their young men and had no compassion over their fatherless and widows. We, in Jesus, under his headship, do please God and we do receive his compassion. Not because our performance is so much better than those ancient Israelites or really quite similar to them, but because Jesus' performance is so much better than those ancient Israelites. Because he obeyed, because he turned to God and we are in Christ as Christians. This is the, the scriptural idea of adoption. 
we go from being spiritual orphans to being sons of God when we trust in Jesus as our Savior and follow Jesus as our Lord. We are adopted into God's household, and He is now our Father, and He relates to us as His sons. Galatians 3.6 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So the same pleasure that God the Father takes in God the Son, He takes in us because we're in the Son. So He looks at you, even though you maybe have had a really bad week, and you've not been walking closely with him, and you have sinned, and you've tried to justify it, or whatever it may be, you feel distanced from him. If you are in Christ, because you have put your faith in him as your Savior, and you have sworn allegiance to him as your Lord, when God looks at you, he is every bit as pleased with you as he is with his son, Jesus Christ. That is a huge foundational truth to lock in to your worldview if you are a Christian. If you're in Christ, God is pleased with you based on Jesus' performance, not your performance. That's why Christianity is such good news. It's awesome to be a Christian. So where Israel became increasingly rotten under their poor leadership, we as Christians, under Jesus' leadership, become increasingly holy. Where they were godless, we are becoming more and more godly, increasingly doing everything for the glory of God. Where they were evildoers, we increasingly become good doers because Ephesians 2 teaches we are saved by grace through faith for good works that God prepared beforehand. So increasingly, we are waking up every morning dedicated and looking forward to the good work opportunities that God puts in front of us. Where they spoke folly, increasingly as Jesus's people and his followers, we speak wisdom, spiritual wisdom from above that transcends earthly wisdom. And in this increasing holiness under Jesus's leadership, we become salt and light in a decaying and darkening world. It will not be our association with political movements that will serve as salt and light in this decaying world. Though it may result in being involved in some political movement, the political movement itself is not our hope. It's Jesus Christ as our king and leader and what he is working out in and through us. You can't bypass Jesus's leadership and hope to bring about good in this world. It has to come from Jesus's leadership. Otherwise, we are too prone to go astray. It has happened time and time again. It's not joining the loudest voices. It is joining to Jesus Christ and letting his voice guide us. That is the key. We have a leader in Jesus Christ, and he is a good leader. And as we follow his leadership, we please God, we receive God's compassion, and we grow increasingly godly, we increasingly do good things, we increasingly speak wisdom. But apart from Jesus, we will inevitably gravitate toward godless, godlessness, evil, and folly. That's just the way it works. So the bottom line for us in wanting to respond to Isaiah chapter 9 is to renew our faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Israel got it wrong. Jesus got it right. Let's stick with Jesus. In our time together this morning, we actually partook of the Lord's Supper again. It's uh, maybe the first time in my tenure at the church that we did it two Sundays in a row, but it seemed like the right thing to do to me, and so we did. And Jesus gave us this simple bread and cup as a way to tangibly re-center ourselves and participate 
in his sacrifice on our behalf. And we're not able to do that over Facebook Live, but where you are, I just encourage you to prayerfully do that. Recenter yourself on Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to sit on the sidelines when you look out in the world and see all the unrest and chaos. It means you stabilize yourself in something that is solid and true, and you protect yourself from getting off course. Because if you get off course and you seek to persuade others, they get off course behind you. And if you get off course just a little bit in the beginning, it makes a big difference as you follow that through all of its implications. So as Christians right now in 2020, we need to root ourselves deeply in Jesus Christ as our leader. Like him, we need to turn to God and inquire of him. Like him, we need to um, stay the course and not be led astray. We need to pursue godliness, good works, and wisdom under Jesus' leadership. And he can enable us to do that. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you how he has succeeded where we all have failed from ancient Israel to modern day Americans. Lord, I pray for those part of this Facebook live stream right now, those watching later, all of us, that you would enable us to follow Jesus as our leader. Like him, enable us to turn toward you and inquire of you. Like him, let us be stabilized in your truth and pursue godliness goodness, and wisdom. Lord, help us to be salt and light in this decaying and darkening world. Show us how to do that as a body of people, as a church. Show us how to do that as individual Christians. We submit ourselves to you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.